Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. No. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Happy weekend, everybody. Welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Here are the logistics, if you want, the rules of engagement if you want to engage with the program. It's pretty simple. You can text the word Mike in your message to our text line, 33103. 33103. Just text the word Mike in whatever message you want to send me, questions, comments, whatever it might be. You can also go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com, theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com, and there you'll find all the social media icons so that you can follow us on social media. You can uh, stream us live there, wherever you are. So you can do that at theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com. It is, it's, it's a bizarre weekend. It's an Orwellian weekend. It's, it's, I, I, I don't know. Um, l- let me tell you just how bizarre it is. I, I want to get to the Federal Reserve, which is going to jack up interest rates. Holy cow. Um, we have a little battle going between the President of the United States who says that his increased spending is not going to cause inflation and the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, who is saying, you know what, I'm going to have to double down because things are even worse than I thought it was. Isn't that fantastic? But to give you a little perspective of just how crazy things are in the world right now, tomato flu. Tomato flu. Are you ready for that? It has prompted health officials in India now you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, India's halfway around the world. In fact, it's next to the it's next to the aptly named Indian Ocean. And since it's way over there, it's not going to come here. Okay. Um, well, let's see. COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, escaped from, at least my belief, is that SARS-CoV-2 escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China, and somehow that made its way here. Uh, somehow, let's see, the Spanish flu epidemic, pandemic, occurred mm, from soldiers coming back from World War I. <laughs> Imagine how that happened. So think about 1914, 1915, 1918, and how limited air travel or even worldwide travel was then. And now think about it today. You can, I can get on a plane right here in little old Denver, Colorado, little cow town of Denver, Colorado, and I can fly halfway around the world from Denver, Colorado. Tomato flu. It has prompted health officials in India to issue their first warning to parents, along with prevention guidance. Doctors say that its symptoms cross over with many other diseases, including flu and the COVID. It's been branded the tomato flu. Got your flu shot yet? I'm thinking about walking into a CVS or a Walgreens or I don't know, a Publix, wherever you might find a pharmacy. And I'm going to go in and say, hey, you got that tomato flu vaccine? I, I dare you to try it. You're going to go buy groceries this week, and you're going to go do something. And I want you, well, I want you to walk back to the, you know, the back of the store where the pharmacist is, stand in line for a little bit, and just say, hey, I was listening to The Weekend with Michael Brown, and he's really, really worried about the tomato flu. 
because, because it's spreading in India, so it's going to get here quickly. And I know it's maybe a little early for our flu shots, but can I get in line now or sign up for the tomato flu vaccine? Now, I don't, I forget, how, what's the world population? I keep forgetting what the world population is. World population, do-do-do-do, population, world, uh, 7.7 billion. Now, let's just round it up. Can we, may, may I round it up, please, to 8 billion, 8 billion people. All right, get your little calculators out and do this calculation. More than 100 children across India have been infected since the first case was noted way back on May 6. Now, some 82 children under the age of five have been reported to have this in some southern state in India, and now a further 26 cases have been reported in rugrats as old as nine in the state of Odisha in uh, India. So we have what? We've got about, um, what would you say that is? Well, it's, it's more than 100. When you start counting them all up, more than 100. So somebody divide 100 into, let's just round it up to 8 billion. I don't know if you want to be conservative. Let's just say 7 billion. And we now have 100 kids in India that have the tomato flu. <laughs> this is never going to stop. And I'm kind of serious about that. In some ways, I mean, it's, it's fun to joke about the tomato flu. I'm afraid I've got the cucumber flu. And I don't know what you have. But I got the cucumber flu. <laughs> I got the cucumber flu. So I, I, don't, I don't know what you have, but uh, we got the tomato flu in India. I'm spreading the, uh, the cucumber flu in Colorado. So I'd like to know what flu you're spreading around, you know, your part of the world. But in all seriousness, nah, not in all seriousness. Yeah, sort of in all seriousness. It's never going to stop. And it's never going to stop for this very simple reason. We have lived for way too long in a society where we are germaphobic. You can go to, well, you can go back to the CVS, you can go to your grocery store, you can go to the Walmart, you can go anywhere, and you can find all sorts of wipes that, or even post-COVID. I still get a kick out of post-COVID, although I find it more convenient that I was in a restaurant last night, a little, little Italian place. And I, I go in the restroom, and I get ready to wash my hands, and I realize, oh, there's a, there's a hand sanitizer dispenser right there. Much easier than washing your hands, right? So I did what billions of people around the world do. I took the hand sanitizer, and I rammed it around my hands, and now my hands are completely sanitizing, completely free of germs. But we now live in, we live in a world where we don't want our kids to get dirty. We don't want our kids to play in the dirt. We don't want them to play out in the grass. We don't want them to pick up bugs. We don't want them to do anything. And I don't mean bugs like a flu. I mean bugs like a little critter running around on the ground. And so because we live in this germaphobic society where everything has to be sterile, are we surprised that there's tomato flu somewhere in India and that it's somehow going to get around to us? Of course it's going to eventually get to us. Do you know how it is? Because in India, some rugrat's father is going to go on a business trip somewhere. The Rugrats got tomato flu in India. He's going to get on a plane, and he's going to fly from, you know, New Delhi to London. And he's going to go about his business in London. And he's going to be spreading the tomato flu around. Unbeknownst to him, because he doesn't have any symptoms. And then all the people in London, and maybe they came there for a conference. And then they're going to, they're going to go to Heathrow, which, you know, I think there's like five flights a day out of Heathrow now because 
airlines are crashing. And those five people are going to fly off to the all, all five corners of the earth, because there's five of them. And they're going to spread the tomato flu. And pretty soon, one's going to land in Newark, one's going to land at JFK, or one's going to land at LAX, or one's going to land at Denver International. And the next thing you know, tomato flu is going to be spreading around everywhere. So let Dr. Let Dr. Michael uh, give you the warnings to look for. Now, here are the symptoms. Now, I read the symptoms, and except for the little rashes that I guess look like tomatoes, I don't know, I think I have some of these symptoms. Fatigue. Man, I'm just tired as a dog today. Nausea. Well, no nausea yet, but mm, could at any moment. Uh, Vomiting. Some of you are vomiting right now. You're listening to this program and you're vomiting. Diarrhea. Uh, somebody on this, per- somebody listening somewhere has got the diarrhea. You got the runs. Okay. Uh, now fever. I don't think I have a fever, but you never know. That's the other thing we're doing now. Everybody's bought thermometers because of SARS-CoV-2. So check your fever right now. Dehydration, swelling of joints, and body aches. I've always got body aches and rashes. Well, let's see. I could, I could honestly say, let's see. Uh, fatigue, probably a little dehydration. And body aches. So I have, I don't have any, well, I'm not going to tell you about my rashes. Uh, so I've got, you know, three of the nine. So I have a third of the, I have a third of the symptoms. I might be coming down with the tomato flu. You might, you know, you maybe you, you ate something bad last night. So you got vomiting and diarrhea. So you're tired. You're, you're, you're nauseated. You're, you're throwing up. You got, you got the runs. And, and because you have all of those things, you probably ha- you have dehydration. And now your body aches. You've got seven of the nine symptoms of tomato flu. I'd suggest you just lock your doors, duct tape your windows, and not go outside for a week because you might be the cause of the spread of tomato flu. In all seriousness. No, well, yes, in all seriousness. I do think a lot of these things are around to stay. And what we ought to do is we ought to quit this irrational fear of germs. And maybe we ought to get, I mean, I don't want anybody to get on their deathbed. I don't want anybody to get so sick they can't go to work. I don't want you so sick that you can't listen to The weekend with Michael Brown. But maybe, you know, a few aches and pains, maybe a little stomach ache, maybe a little diarrhea occasionally. I mean, you know, I'm just saying that perhaps if we weren't so germophobic and we didn't sterilize everything that we do, maybe, just maybe our bodies would develop better immune systems and we wouldn't be worried about the tomato flu. Oh, you're not worried about it? Mark my words. You will eventually hear about this in the national news somewhere in, in the continental United States between now and next weekend. The tomato flu. Watch out for the tomato flu because you never know when it's going to come and get you. Speaking of tomato flu, you know, Dr. Fauci announced, Dr. Tony Fauci of the National Institute's of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, the NIAID at the National Institute of Health, which is a part of the CDC. Don't you love that bureaucratic? Think about that bureaucratic chart right there. He works for the Centers for Disease Control, which oversees the National Institute of Health, which oversees the NIAID, the National Institute of of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. And then somewhere down there is Dr. Fauci. It's a great bureaucracy. He announced his retirement at the end of the year. And in so, and when he did, he, he announced that there were, um, he didn't cause any lockdowns. He didn't do any lockdowns. 
Well, stay tuned because we have the receipts. Yeah, Dr. Fauci can deny it all he wants, but we have the receipts. Hey, it's the weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103, Mike to 33103, and go to michaelbrown.com to stream us live and to follow me on social media. Dr. Fauci and the receipts about him lying coming up next. Hey, happy weekend, everybody. Welcome to the weekend with Michael Brown. Really glad to have you with me. Not even lying about that. Really am. Text the word Mike to 33103 if you want to send me a message. Real easy to do. You take your you take your little phone out and you get to your message service. You know, if you got if you got an iPhone, and who doesn't? If you got an iPhone, you go to the, your iMessages, and your the phone number you're going to text to is 33103, 33103. And then the keyword is Mike. So you type the word Mike, and then you send me a message. Real easy. We made it really simple for all you goobers all across the country to send me a text message. And you'll get a response that says, we read all of your messages, and um, we've got it set up so you'll get that, you're supposed to get that automatic reply just once a week. But I I have no guarantees. (laughs) I I have no guarantees whatsoever. So Dr. Fauci has announced that he's going to retire after, I don't know, four, five, six, I don't know, a century and a half, whatever it is. He's, what, 187 years old? And he's going to have one of the, I think his pension, if I recall correctly. Now, I, I don't begrudge him this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not begrudging him this. I'm only using it as a point of reference for all of you have, who have worked, and, and I, I'm not sure how many people do this anymore but have worked for the same place, like my dad did. My dad worked in the same place from the before he graduated from high school. He and two buddies of his started a, a little commercial pr- printing shop. And he worked there until he retired. And then after he retired, he continued to work there, uh, you know, part-time, because he just, you know, like most men, just has to have something to do all the time. So he worked there for like 40-plus years. Now, I don't know if, if any of you have done that. I'd be curious. In fact, you know, if you have, text the word Mike to 33103 and tell me where you worked and how long you worked there. Dr. Fauci worked for the federal government for 40-plus years. Now, today, he hasn't retired yet, but today he is still the highest-paid bureaucrat in the entire federal government. He makes more than the President of the United States of America. Let's see if I can pull up his salary real quick. Uh, Dr. Fauci, the President of the United States makes $400,000 a year. Dr. Fauci makes $417,608 a year. Hate to drop that $2 there. $417,608. Now, he obviously didn't make that when he started 40-plus years ago. But after 40-plus years, his pension will pay him approximately, I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. (laughs) The taxpayers will pay him, meaning you and me. Well, not them. Those goobers over there don't pay any taxes. But us taxpaying goobers will pay him more than 
$100,000 a year. Now, I don't begrudge him that because he's been there that long. If you worked someplace for 40 years, I'm sure you did not get a pension of $318,000 a year. But what bugs me about Dr. Fauci is his claim on the heels of his retirement announcement. He goes around and he does all these interviews. He makes the rounds of all the cable shows. And I think he's doing so because he's trying to establish his so-called legacy and he's trying to make sure that we all understand that, you know, he was the great guy and he didn't shut anything down. Do you regret particularly the last one, the shutdown, the sweeping shutdown that some yeah. said made things worse. No, I, I, I don't, uh, Neil. And in fact, I think we need to make sure that your listeners understand I didn't shut down anything. Oh, here we go. I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. And the only way to do that is by draconian means of essentially shutting down the country. We know that we can do that if we shut down. Well, I think one of the things you really need to do, to the extent that you can shut down mm. temporarily mm. the country, I think is important. Well, if I knew at the time that shutting down would have such a dramatic effect on controlling the spread, obviously we would have shut down earlier. There are those who say you shut down your dis destructive things by disrupting the economy. And others say, well, if you save so many infections by shutting down, why didn't you shut down two weeks earlier? But I don't regret saying that the only way we could have really stopped the explosion of infection was by essentially, um, I want to say shutting down. I mean, essentially having the physical separation and the kinds of recommendations that we've made. You've been a big fan of Cuomo and the shutdown in New York. You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great no. job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator. Isn't it wonderful? Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah. Trying to reestablish your legacy. That is exactly what Dr. Fauci is doing. So I say, bye-bye, enjoy your retirement, and while you're out rejoin, re, you know, enjoying your retirement, just don't come back. And to the next president, whoever that is, don't hire a Dr. Fauci. No more shutdowns. They do not work. It's The Weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103, and I'll be right back. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. I sincerely appreciate you tuning in. You can text the word Mike. Uh, these are the rules of engagement. You text the word Mike to 33103. And you can go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com where you can follow me on social media. And I, I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
And if you, if you do follow me on Facebook, there's a little private group there called Michael Brown Unplugged that you can enjoy. You can enjoy. Yeah, you can enjoy it. Uh, you can join it, and you can post memes and comments and things up there in that little private group. So follow me on Facebook. It's at Michael D. Brown. So the President of the United States, God bless him, I swear, I think about, um, and this has nothing to do with partisan politics. I, 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 I don't know how to explain this or how to be any more sincere than to say I really don't mean this in a partisan way. But for any of you who have had elderly parents that as they get older, you know, they become forgetful and they become, uh, you know, some, some develop dementia, some unfortunately develop Alzheimer's. But you, as you get older, you just tend to kind of forget things. And then the things that you do remember, those really old memories that come to the kind of the, to the frontal lobe, and that's what you think about, th- that's what this president is doing. So that's why he's always talking about, you know, his days when, you know, his dad would tell him, Joey, you know, when you grow up, and, you know, and, and, and Joey, I'm growing up here in Scranton, to, you know, a, a tough Scrabble town, and I gotta be, I gotta be a tough guy, and I like to, I like, you know, you want to touch the, my wrinkly hair on my legs kind of thing. Oh, it's just, I mean, it's pathetic. It's also scary when you think about that both our friends and our allies are looking at this guy and realizing that, you know, he, he just is not with it. And it, it should scare us from a, just a pure national security point of view. But it also scares me, setting aside the physiological aspects of it, the aspects that he has been, he has been pulled, willingly pulled. He's sitting in a little red wagon, one of those little red, you know, what, what were they called, something, flyer wagons, so a little red wagon, I think you can still buy them somewhere for your kids, and, and all of these kind of Marxist, far-left, progressive people are taking that little red wagon, and they're pulling him way to the left. And they're adopting policies that, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that Senator Elizabeth Warren, that self-avowed socialist Bernie Sanders all advocate things like modern monetary theory, which is basically just print all the money you need. And my God, that's what we're doing. Kareem Jean, Jean-Pierre, or as I call her, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was at a White House gaggle recently, and she said this. Uh, Ambassador uh, Rice spoke to this uh, yesterday. I know this question was asked of her. And um, so just a couple of things before I get to that piece. Yeah. She's busily thumbing through her spiral notebook looking for an answer to a question. The White House press secretary, I know, has to adhere to what are called SAPs, Statement of Administration Positions. But you ought to be able to answer a question about the economy without trying to find the answer about the economy. Because the answer ought to be, as you hear... Um, So... You know, the president's record on fiscal responsibility is second to to none. (laughs) Uh, In case, in case many of you are hard of hearing or you've got a little dementia yourself or you're busy doing something else and you miss that or you find it unbelievable, let me, may I repeat it for you, please. The White House Press press Secretary, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 
says well, the president's record on fiscal responsibility is second to, to none uh, and last year alone you've heard us talk about this because this is incredibly important uh, we ach he achieved 350 billion dollars in deficit reduction now keep that number in mind he achieved 350 billion dollars in deficit reduction now i don't think she says this but that's over a 10-year period so let me see. Let me do my math. See, let me see if I can do these high, high mathematics in my head. $350 billion divided by 10, I think, is $3.5 billion a year. So he's reduced the deficit, which means the annual amount that we overspend beyond our means, he's reduced that by $3.5 billion. It doesn't mean it went away. It doesn't mean that our deficit went away. We still spend more than we take in. But he reduced that delta between what we bring in and what we spend. He reduced it by $3.5 billion. Well, hallelujah. I mean, pass the beer. Whoop, 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 whoop de doo. And this year, it's projected by the end of the fiscal year to, to be at $1.7 trillion uh, deficit reduction. This is Which is still, just so you know, even if it's $1.7 trillion, that's still over 10 years. They never say that, but that's what it is. Over seven years, we're still spending more than we bring in. We're spending a lot more. Historic. What, historic. what we're talking about here is historic numbers because of the... Historic numbers. ...work that this president has done when it... Because of the work this president has done. Historic numbers because of the work that this president has done. So the market yesterday, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but the market yesterday lost, uh, I think, 1,008 points. The market the day before, which would be on Thursday, it, the market lost like 600 points. Now, I quite frankly don't remember what it is, um, uh, what the market lost earlier in the week. But we're truly in bear territory. But don't you worry, the president's at a rally. Guess what? You hear, you hear Republicans always talk about the deficit, right? About big spending Democrats. Well, guess what? Guess what? Listen closely, because he admits the truth here. Listen closely. When the last guy was president, he increased the debt by $2 trillion in tax cuts. Not a penny of it paid for, okay? Well, guess what we did? We reduced the deficit. The, inf the Inflation Reduction Act lowers the deficit by 300 billion over the next 10 years. Over the next 10 years, we're going to reduce the deficit by 300 billion dollars. Okay, 3 billion dollars a year. In a 4 plus trillion dollar budget, and we're spending way beyond 4 trillion dollars per year. Uh, I'd like to say, I can't say it on air, but I'd like to say BFD. Yeah, just BFD because it doesn't do squat. So why did the markets yesterday really just say, okay, we're coming up on the Labor Day weekend. Let's get the hell out of here. Um, because Jerome Powell was in, I think he was in, um, he wasn't in Aspen. He was, I forget where he was, but he was, he was, he was out west. He was out here somewhere. You know, he, he was up in a high altitude, so maybe he was just suffering from oxygen deprivation. But uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, had this to say. We are now about halfway through the intermeeting period. Our decision at this September meeting will depend on the totality of the incoming data and the evolving outlook. At some point, as the stance of monetary policy tightens further, 
it likely will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. Hmm. Will require a restrictive policy stance for some time. Now, if, if, if you're not a goober that's educated in, this, in the language of the Federal Reserve, a restrictive policy stance means we got this guy over here in the White House. Now, the Federal Reserve is just slightly, it's just a few blocks west of where the White House is. And so they're just, these, these two guys are just a few blocks apart. Oh, he was in, I think he was in Jackson Hole. So actually, they were, they were further apart. I don't, I don't know where Biden was. But their offices are just a few blocks apart. So, so the guy on the east end, the White House, Biden, is spending trillions of dollars that we don't have. The guy over on the other side of the block is going, holy feces, Batman. Um, we're going to have to impose to get to restore price stability in order to bring inflation down to a normal range of, you know, maybe 2 or 3% a year instead of the, you know, 9-plus percent a year that we're, in, that we're engaged in. That's going to require a more restrictive policy stance for some time, meaning higher and higher interest rates for longer than we expected. And what he's really saying to the White House is, because they, they, they're supposed to be independent of each other, but they, they have a way of talking in D.C., and this is a way of telling the president, hey, hey, bucko, you keep spending like this, we're going to keep jacking up interest rates. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. Committee participants' most recent individual projections from the June SEP showed the median federal funds rate running slightly below 4% through the end of 2023. We're going to have to keep doing this, he's saying. We're going to have to keep doing it. It's going to last longer than anybody wanted. He continued. Inflation is running well above 2%, and high inflation has continued to spread through the economy. I like that. Uh, so inflation is at 2%, but high inflation... So I guess we have two categories of inflation now. We have the standard inflation that's out there that you would expect in a growing economy of around 2%. But guess what? We have, a, we have extra inflation. We have high inflation. While the lower inflation readings for July are certainly welcome, a single month's improvement falls far short of what the committee will need to see before we are confident that inflation is moving down. So we are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. That's going to be painful. Painful. I, um, I purchased a new Jeep Grand Cherokee back in January. I use it for my dogmobile to haul Greta the Leonberger around. And I was fortunate to get a 0% interest rate. Now, when they came to me and said, hey, we have a program here, and because of your credit score, we can offer you a 0% interest rate, because I knew what was coming down the pike, I mean, who would, that's free money. That, that's Chrysler Jeep, Corp, that, that's Chrysler Jeep Financial, whatever it is, corporation saying to me, hey, we'll give you some money. If you'll, just pay us back, no interest, you take this Jeep, and we'll give you uh, free money, and do you want to pay it back in 
uh, three years, four years, five years, six years? Now, because I know that I'm going to drive this Jeep probably until it falls apart, so I said, sure, give it to me for six years. Now, I would never do that for the standard car loan. But 0%? I say that because, now I'm not giving financial advice, but if you were to, for example, decide that you want to buy a car, you might want to do it now. Any loan, I mean, I know it's higher now than it has been, but having lived through the Carter years, where my wife and I actually had a 21% mortgage, you might want to do something now rather than later. My 0% loan, <laughs> I'm sure Chrysler Corporation at this point, is, or Tri- Chrysler Jeep, whoever it is, say, hey, hey, call that goober back. Tell him we want to charge him uh, 15% for that loan. No, sorry, buckos, you've already signed the note. Inflation is going to get worse. Why? Well, stay tuned. Don't let me tell you why. Let the politicians tell you why inflation is going to get worse. Hang tight. It's the weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103, and I'll be right back. Text the word Mike to 33103. Mike to 33103. Yeah, I did my math wrong. Text messages <laughs> from Goober number 7272. Mike, $350 billion divided by 10 is uh, 35, not 3.5. Yeah, I told you I'm not good at math. $35 billion a year. My point remains the same, though. <laughs> it's still $35 billion in a... You see, I think sometimes we... Here's what happens with with budget numbers. Thirty. If, if you don't understand, and I'm not saying you, none of you do, because I think all of you goobers do understand this, but the average goober on the street, if you say, hey, I got $35 billion over here, but I only have $4 trillion, which do you want? Oh, well, 35 is more than four, so yeah, I want the $35 billion, because we don't understand the difference between a billion dollars and a trillion dollars. So it's still not enough to cover the deficit. The budget deficit, that which we spend every year beyond what we take in, now that deficit eventually becomes a part of the debt. And the national debt, which is in the trillions of dollars, like $30 trillion or something, I forget what the number is, but it's way up there. Way up. It's, it's, it's so up there. It's, well, we need NASA to get a, a Voyager to get us up there to find out what it is. But when I talk about spending, and an eye-popping analysis done by Penn Horton School of Business says this. Now, this, this is the University of Pennsylvania. This is the Wharton School of Business. President Biden's new student loan forgiveness plan includes three major components. We estimate that debt cancellation alone, now you think, I know many people think, well, debt cancellation, that means the debt just goes away. No, it does not. For example, if, if someone loans me $1,000, 
They've given me $1,000, and I've promised to pay it back. If they then sell my note to somebody else, say at, you know, 75 cents on the dollar, so they sell the note to somebody else for $750, they now have a note that has a face value of $1,000 that they paid $750 for. And then suddenly the president comes along and says, Michael Brown doesn't have to pay that debt anymore. The debt just doesn't disappear. Somebody has to cover those costs when it comes from the taxpayers. So when I tell you that they estimate the debt cancellation, that means somebody else has to pay for that. It's a wealth redistribution program. They, they estimate that will cost up to $519 billion dollars with about 75% of the benefit accruing to households making $88,000 or less. Loan forbearance will cost another $16 billion. The new income-driven repayment program would cost another $70 billion, increasing the total plan cost to about $605 billion under strict static assumptions. However, depending on future program details be, be released and potential behavior, changes, behavioral changes, the total plan cost could exceed $1 trillion. A trillion dollars is an enormous sum of money. It's more than $6,000 per taxpayer. So who are those taxpayers? Who, who pays the taxes? Who are those people? Well, there are, according to the Tax Foundation, there are about 148 million tax returns filed as of 2019. 148 million tax returns. So 148 million taxpayers are going to pay through increased taxes, increased interest rates, higher inflation. We're all going to pay for it. But it's specifically those 148 million taxpayers are going to pay the bulk of it. The top 50%, the top 50% of taxpayers, here's how it breaks down. The top, the top 1%, the top 50%, the top 50% of taxpayers paid 97% of all individual income taxes. See you on the other side. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, all you goobers. Welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. I, uh... Genuinely, sincerely appreciate you tuning in on the weekend and engaging with me on the program. It's really easy to participate. You simply text the word Mike to 33103. You just type in the word, you type in the phone number, 33103, and you start your text message with the word Mike, and then you tell me whatever you want to tell me or ask me any questions. And you'll get a response that says that we read every text message, and then some requirements, you know, about text message data rate, rates, blah, 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 whatever it is. Uh, you can just ignore that. And we have it set up where you should only receive that once a week, but 
There's no guarantees that that's actually how the algorithm works, so you may get that several times, but it is what it is. Nonetheless, we do read all the text, or I do read all the text messages. I read them personally. I, um, this hour, maybe after I do this next story, I want to go back for a moment to the student loan debt cancellation. Because at the end of the hour, end of the hour I, I, it just dawned on me. It was like, duh. Sometimes we forget. You know, we always hear about who should pay their fair share of taxes, right? And I've asked people on every side of the aisle, far left, far right, down the middle, apolitical. I've asked every goober you can possibly imagine. What, what, what is someone's fair share? What is it? And I can never, mo- most of the time, it comes out with, um, well, you know, I, I, I want them to pay their fair share. I understand you want them to pay their fair share. What is that? If I make, if I truly make $1 million a year after all my expenses, after all my invest, you know, capital investments in my, in my business, after, if after everything I spend money on to make a million dollars, I actually have a million dollars in profit, what's the fair share of that? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is it 90%? What is it? And I would say 99.9% of the time, people can't give me an answer what the fair share is. So what I want to come to, maybe in the next segment, is give you a breakdown, because I was looking at the, at the Tax Foundation numbers, about who pays what in this country in terms of taxes. And I know numbers are hard to do on the radio, but I'm going to try to make it, I'll try to make it interesting, right? I'll try to make it interesting for you. But before we get to that, you know, the big news of the week was that on Friday at noon, they released this redacted, what's called the probable cause affidavit that is attached to the request for a search warrant. Here's how this works in any criminal matter. And obviously they have made this a criminal matter. A and a law enforcement officer, in this case an FBI special agent, fills out, and in this case it is a 30, it's a 38-page document. So he files a 38-page affidavit that explains to the federal magistrate judge, I want to search these premises. And the premises happen to be at, um, they specified the address, 1100. South Ocean Boulevard, Palm Beach, Florida, 33480, here and after the premises. It's a residence and a club known as Mar-a-Lago. It's the president's personal residence. It's the former, pre- it's former President Trump's. In fact, they refer to him in this as the F-POTUS. No, not the F word, former. The former president of the United States. So this probable cause affidavit, as in any affidavit in which you're asking for a search warrant, you have to spell out why there is probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed and that the evidence of that crime can be found in the specific, the specific pieces of evidence that you're looking for that prove that that crime probably occurred can be found at this specific ev- residence and within that residence in these specific places. You have to specify under the Fourth Amendment the, the essence of 
where the evidence is located, what the evidence is, and the reason you believe it is there, and to, and to describe the evidence also. So that's what this document is right here. It's the probable cause affidavit. I read through the entire thing. It's 38 pages. By the time you take out, for example, I'm looking at pages 38 and 39 right now. Pages 38 and 39 are in essence, well, so are pages, well, they're all. They're all. This is page, no, I take it back. This is page 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 are all redacted out with the exception of paragraph number 39. On or about May 6, 2021, the National Archives and Records Administration made a request for the missing PRA, Presidential Record Administration records, and continued to make requests until approximately late December 2021 when the National uh, um, Archives and Records Associ- uh, uh, Agency was informed that 12 boxes were found and ready for retrieval at the premises. And then it goes blank. Talks about the 15 boxes, talks about this, talks about that. But it doesn't really tell you anything other than we think these classified documents are at Mar-a-Lago. So they raid the premises. Now, I think they've stepped into some big doo-doo doing that. The President of the United States has the ultimate, ultimate, he cannot be questioned. It's like presidential pardons. A president can pardon anyone for any reason, and he can pardon anyone for no reason. He can even pardon someone for crimes that they haven't even been proven to have committed yet. You can go to the, you know, if you can get through the pardon process, and you can finally get a president to look at your pardon request. I could allege that I think next year I'm going to be charged with X. And I'd like to be pardoned in advance for that. A president could do that if he wanted to. It's the same with the classification authority. A president can decide that any, anything he has, a document, an email, a, a one of those pink slips, orange slips, about a phone call that used to exist, a sticky pad, a sticky note, whatever. He gets to decide, even if it's marked SCI, Special Compartmentalized Information, the highest of classifications, or even NDI, National Defense Intelligence, he can declassify any of that. When he when he moves, when he moved from, Je- from the White House on January 20th, 2021, he didn't pack up everything. During the course of his presidency, which is true of any presidency, he may take classified documents in a binder up to the residence in the East Wing and read those documents, and he can leave those on his side table, and there's nothing illegal about that. So let's say that over the course of several years, Trump took things up to the East Wing to read, and they were in the East Wing, and when the General Services Administration began to box up to move that president, the former President Trump, from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, 
teams of federal employees went through and just boxed up everything they found in all the rooms that they used in the East Wing. And those got trucked down to Mar-a-Lago. Then a former president like Trump would start, you know, not every day, and I can't imagine Trump doing it even more than maybe a few hours a week. The former presidents will start going through those records because there are some records in there that they know don't belong to them. They belong back to the government. There are some records they want to keep. There may be some records they want to make copy of and turn the others back to the government. I mean, the president has an ultimate authority. But many people argue that there are classified documents that were a danger to the country and that he might have engaged in espionage. Now, think about that allegation. What that allegation means is that Donald Trump, I mean, this is just like Russia, Russia, Russia all over again. To engage in espionage, he would have to take classified information and turn it over to a foreign person, a foreign agent, a foreign agency, a foreign government, something or someone other than the United States, or even a U.S. citizen on behalf of a foreign agent. That is an incredible accusation to make against a president. But it's one we've heard before. We were told back during the 2015-2016 election that Donald Trump was, was a Russian agent, all of which was proven to be false. So did the FBI overstep in this particular case? Well, the FBI's foreign intelligence chief declared that, yeah, they probably did. Whoops, I'm sorry, let me turn off. Some other earth. Steve, we know that so often these policies don't actually do anything. It is just about the optics. It's just about the symbolism of it. But talk to us about your, your column. I'm so frustrated because, as you guys know, I work for Donald Trump, and we put together a great program of American energy independence. We cut taxes. We reduced regulations. We got tough with China. And I really believe that the economy would be absolutely booming right now if Trump were still president. I'm looking at a lot of these lead indicators on the economy <coughs> where we are right now. Manufacturing. I'm sorry, I've got the wrong clip. I apologize for that. I've got the wrong clip. But here's what this former intelligence chief said Friday. He said that the agency should not have criminalized the records and this records dispute between Trump and the National Archives, and that the FBI actually appears to have failed to meet the probable cause standard for the invasion of his residence down in Florida. He said on this, on this same TV channel, I think they're going to regret this. Ordinarily an ardent defender of my former agency, I have concerns, and I've had concerns for several days, that the Bureau did not exhaust other means to resolve the dispute over presidential alleged classified records that Trump kept. I do not believe that the FBI adequately considered the possibility that Trump had wide latitude to declassified records and to declare those records personal. He went on to say, I will caveat all of this by saying, we can only see what we can see, referring to the probable cause affidavit. But the first thing that jumped out to me is that the probable cause statement focuses on the nature of the documents and where they're located. I think that is a point that the dominant media 
fails to discuss. Fails to discuss. And here's why. Listen to what he said again. But the first thing that jumped out to me is that this affidavit supporting the search warrant focuses on the nature of the documents and where they're located. Meaning, they only care that the f- they're only worried about the fact that these documents are located at Mar-a-Lago, and some of them are classified as secret, top secret, top secret SCI, special access programs, whatever the you know the NDI, whatever the classification might be. And they're at a resort in Florida, and they're not in a skiff. A skiff is a special compartmentalized or special compartmented information facility. SCIF, SCIF. It's a place where, well, I'll give you an example. The White House Situation Room is a SCIF. So when I go to the White House Situation Room, I have to first check in with the the naval people that run the SCIF, the naval officers, the White House communications team. I have to check in there. I have to show my credentials. I have to be signed in for that meeting or tell them what meeting I'm there to attend. I have to leave my cell phone outside that room. And then I walk into this room that's in the basement under the West Wing where it's got a long conference table really nice chairs, and then when the president comes in, they, they shut the door, they seal that door, and nobody can hear what's going on. It's a secured, compartmented information facility. And we can talk about anything, and we can look at all these documents. And sometimes we have people on TV screens that are in other skiffs around the country, or sometimes even around the world, where we can talk to them about things that are top secret. It's fairly routine. But I want you to think about the White House Situation Room. It's a special room inside the White House, which is in and of itself secured, and in which other documents that are marked top secret can be taken to other rooms inside that building, and that the president can take those into his a residence. So think about that. Because I'm going to describe when we get back how Mar-a-Lago itself might be a break. Text the word Mike to 33103. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103. 33103. I'm describing a skiff because these classified documents, in fact, Goober number 1970 texted me this. Mike, have you noticed the news reports make an extra effort to say marked as classified, top secret, etc.? I think that's because the documents were probably declassified without remarking them. Now, that may not be the proper procedure, but nonetheless, that's something a president can do. He can look at a document. He can look at a document right here and say, you know what? This is marked top secret. I'm taking this with me. I'm declassifying this. Now, the staff is responsible at that point for following the procedure to do it. But that document may never get scratched through, which is simply a marking with an authority stamp that says no longer top secret. I've seen many of those documents 
I've seen many that are top secret SCI, TSSCI. I've seen, I've seen special access programs. And I've seen those that have used to be that were no longer. But think about the White House. The White House has controlled access. That's why a president can take these documents up to his bedroom and read them if he wants to. So the GSA, on January 20, 2021, actually days before that, has boxed up all the documents, all everything they found, found in, the, in the bedrooms, in the sitting rooms, in the dining rooms where the president and Melania lived. They put those in boxes and they moved them to Mar-a-Lago. So I'm sure there were documents that got taken down there. But I want you to think about Mar-a-Lago like you would think about the White House. The Secret Service is still there. I can't just walk up to Mar-a-Lago and just go walking down hallways looking for, hey, where's the, where's the office of, where's, where's Office 45? Where is it? I'm looking for it. Is it here? Where is it? No, I can't do that. It's really not much different than the White House. It's a former president's residence. If they wanted these documents, they could have issued a subpoena and then they could have thought about it over court. This is simply another attempt, in my opinion, to just blast Donald Trump. Regardless of what you think about him, it's wrong. Hang tight. It's the weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103. Those taxpayer numbers next. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Michael Brown, glad to have you with me. Text the word Mike to uh, 33103. Mike to 33103. I want to talk about fair shares for a minute. Who pays fair shares? Everybody's going to pay their fair share. Well, let's go back. Here we go. Last year, like Chris Coons and Tom Carper and my distinguished congresswoman, we come from the land of corporate America. There are more corporations incorporated in America than every other state in America combined. And I still won 36 years in a row. The point is, even they understand they should pay just a fair share. Last year, 55 of the Fortune 500 companies earned $40 billion in profit and paid zero in federal taxes. Ooh, and they boo. I wonder why they paid zero in income taxes. Does anybody, does anybody know why they may have paid zero in income taxes? Hold that thought. Or text me. Text me why you think. Text the word Mike to 33103. Why do you think those corporations that made $40 billion paid zero in federal income taxes? Now look. Now look. It's not fair. It's not fair. That's why I proposed the 15% minimum tax rate for corporations. We've and got he got it. it in this last bit. He gets it. And that's why... In the G7 and other meetings overseas, we were able to put together, I was able to be somewhat helpful, 130 countries degree on a global minimum tax rate. So companies can't get out of paying their taxes at home by shipping jobs in factories overseas. It'll raise billions of dollars. 
And that's why I propose closing loopholes for the very wealthy who don't pay a, who pay a lower tax rate than a teacher and a firefighter. Think about that one for a minute, too. We'll come back to that. So that's my plan, but we have to go more detail later. I'm going to grow. We will grow the economy, lower the cost of families. So what are we waiting? <laughs> you know, I have to laugh because when you think about this, you know, we're going to grow the economy. We're going to lower the cost of families. This was from his speech back on uh, Tuesday, March 1st. Um, how's that working out for you? Hmm? Paying less in gas, paying less in groceries, paying less in taxes? No, you're not. Because the plans that they put together have the opposite effect of what they wanted to do. When you tax a corporation, that corp- even if it's the minimum tax of 15%, when you tax that corporation, what does that company do? That company says, okay, we're, we, you know, our costs, taxes are part of their costs. Taxes are no different in one sense than their overhead, their rent, their utilities, their salaries, their benefits, the cost of the goods to, you know, whatever it takes to produce their widgets. All of those costs go into what you and I pay for that product or service. So what's the fair share? What is it when he says that, you know, corporations should be paying their fair share? What is that? Do you have a number in mind? Because I would truly like to know what people think the fair share is. The, let me pull up this, I want to get this chart. Here we go. So the top 1%, of taxpayers paid almost 26% average individual income tax rates. Now, this is rates. I'm not talking about dollar amounts or shares. I'm talking about their rate. That income tax rate of almost 26% in the top 1% of taxpayers is more than seven times higher than taxpayers in the bottom 50% whose tax rate was an average 3.5%. Is that fair in terms of rates? So people are paying different rates based upon the amount of money they make. Now that's called a progressive income tax. Is a progressive income tax fair or not fair? I'm I'm not going to say. I want you to think about it. They also report that the share of reported income earned by the top 1% of taxpayers fell to 20% from 20.9% in 2018. The top 1% share of federal in, of share of federal individual income taxes paid fell to 38% from 40%. What does that mean? The top 1% of taxpayers paid 38% of all taxes. Well, wait a minute, is that fair? Should the top or should the top 1% be paying a different percentage of all taxes? Now, this is going to start you know, maybe some of you are in the top 1%, I don't know. But I bet a lot of you goobers are in the top 50%. The top 50% of all taxpayers pay 
of all individual income taxes. The remaining bottom 50% paid that 3%. So think about taxpayers in two groups, the top 50% and the bottom 50%. The top 50% paid 97% of all individual income taxes, and the bottom percent paid only 3 So the top 1% paid a greater share of individual income taxes than the bottom 90% combined. Is, is is that fair? Is it? I renew my question, Your Honor. What is fair? I'll tell you what's fair. Fair for me is that there ought to be, obviously for the poorest of the poor, they shouldn't be paying any income taxes. And I don't know what that is. I don't know whether I, I don't know what that dollar amount is. But I think that everyone should have skin in the game. Everyone, everyone who works at a job, I want them to get a paycheck at the end of their pay period, and I want them to see, even if it's $1, that they paid $1 to the federal government in income taxes. And I don't want them to get that dollar back because I want them to have skin in the game. It's the same thing I said last weekend about I wish we could get rid of April 15th as tax day. Instead, April 15th is the day that you get the, that you get the letter that says, based just on your income, not on if there was a flat tax, not if there was any sort of, you know, flat tax, but just a, but a straight progressive income tax like we have today, that based on the amount that you earned, 38000 98000 180000 you owe X, because everybody would have a heart attack on April 15th, and everybody would start paying attention to what we pay the federal government in taxes. Now, you could still then file your tax return and claim your deductions, claim your expenses, file your, file your Schedule C, file your, your, your Schedule K, whatever you might be filing, to reduce your tax burden, to reduce your tax liability, legally and lawfully. But I want you to see what you should owe. Because then we might be able to have a rational discussion about what is actually fair. When you ask a Bernie Sanders or you ask an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, those who believe that we ought to expand the social welfare system in this country to be much like Europe, and you ask them what should be the fair share, the first thing they say is that, you know, corporations should all have to pay something. Well, you know, I just made that argument about people that are individuals. So if I'm going to be consistent, shouldn't I make the same argument about corporations that pay zero in tax dollars? Yeah, I would be. But I can still see them having a zero tax liability for one very simple reason. Those companies may have what are called loss carry forward. They actually lost money the year before, but it exceeded, their loss exceeded what they would owe in taxes. So you carry that forward to the next year until you've used up that loss carry forward. Or let's say that that corporation owes $10 million in taxes based on a 15% minimum income tax. But instead, they they took that $10 million 
and they invested it in capital improvements or ex- capital expenses that they can write off in that year because that makes that company more profitable, meaning that next year they'll pay even more taxes. This whole issue of we, we've got to get to the point where all goobers in this country have some skin in the game and that all goobers recognize that what we pay every single year is not going to help us get out of this hole. We're in this hole that we're not going to get out of. How bad is it? With all the talk, with, with everything I've described about, you know, somebody, some illiterate goober trying to be kind here, you offer them $38 billion versus $4 trillion. And they think to themselves, hmm, well, I don't know what a trillion dollars is, but 38 sounds bigger than four, so I'll, I think I'll take the $38 billion. That is such an economic ignorance of where the country is fiscally that when I describe to you what the debt is, and actually one of you goobers sent me a great one-pager about this. I'm going to use that one-pager because I think it's the easiest and quickest way to describe what this trillion dollars in debt is. You've probably seen the graphs or the little diagrams that are all over the interwebs of here's a guy standing next to, you know, a million dollars stacked up. And then here's a guy standing next to that 10 million and 100 million, then a billion, and then a trillion. And the guy just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller until when you get to a trillion dollars, you can barely see that little guy that's standing over there in the corner. Well, that's one way to look at it. But there are other ways to look at it, too, that I think give it a different perspective. And the perspective that I'm about to give you in the next, in the next segment is a segment that ought to cause you to catch your breath and realize that when Jerome Powell says he's going to increase interest rates because we're spending so much money, you'll think to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're spending more money than what that goober Michael Brown just described, and we're going to spend even more money on top of that? We're bankrupt. We're bankrupt. When you, when you cannot, now, people will tell me, they'll make the argument, well, the government can't go bankrupt. Well, that's not technically true. Some governments do go bankrupt. Maybe they don't go through a bankruptcy court, but they, they go bankrupt. They, go, they, just, they cease to exist, and revolutions ensue. But some governments, some municipal governments, can actually declare bankruptcy. New York's declared bankruptcy. But what does that mean? It means that your debts are beyond your capacity to pay. You don't have the assets or the income to pay the debts, and therefore you're bankrupt. That's how an individual goes bankrupt. You look at the totality of your assets, the totality of your income, and no matter what you do, you can't pay off those debts. So hang tight, because when we come back, I'm going to give you about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm going to give you seven bullet points. And I want to, I want to thank one of the goobers, because this actually can puts it in concise form for me. Seven bullet points when we get back to give you some perspective about where the country is fiscally. Text the word Mike to 33103. It's the weekend with Michael Brown. Text me 33103. Hang tight. Coming right back with these numbers. 
Happy weekend, everyone. Welcome to the weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Text the word Mike to 33103. Go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com to follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by simply going to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com. You can see all the social media icons. You can get the podcast there also. So there are various ways to look at what a trillion dollars is and where we are in terms of the national debt. But one of you goobers sent me a one-pager that I thought sums it up better than most that I've seen over the past several months. So how much is $1 trillion? And how much is every single family's so-called fair share of the national debt? But first, what's a, tr- what's, what's a trillion dollars? Can you actually tell me what the definition of a trillion dollars is? A trillion dollars, one trillion dollars, is one million millions. A million millions. Add up the zeros. Start counting the zeros. Three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen. Fifteen zeros. One trillion times a thousand uh, times a million dollars per day. One million days. 1 million days divided by 365.25 by 1 million days divided by 365 days a year 2737.8 years 2740 years so if you spent 1 million dollars per day 1 million dollars a day it would take about 2740 years to spend just 1 trillion dollars to spend 1 trillion dollars which is a million millions, it would take you 2,740 years to spend that trillion dollars. If you started spending a million dollars per day since Christ was born, you would still have over 700 years left to spend that $1 trillion. Now, what's our federal debt? The federal debt, the federal debt is now well over $30 trillion. $30 trillion. So it would take about 82,000 years at a million dollars per day to pay back the current federal debt of $30 trillion. And that's if you just stopped everything right now. No more interest accrual, nothing else, just boom. The $30 trillion, which is the principal plus interest that is due today, give or take, you know, obviously several, you know, maybe another trillion dollars or so, based on what Biden's doing. This is why politicians of both parties, a pox on both of them, because every time they spend extra and add to the debt, it decreases the value of that fiat currency, that printed currency, or that fake, you know, silver quarter that's made out of something else that's in your pocket, or that penny that costs more than a penny to make. We're insane what we're doing. We're absolutely insane what we're doing right now. So think about the $30 trillion in debt. $30 trillion. Stopping today. No more spending. No more interest. We just stop today. It would take 82,000 years at a million dollars a day to pay back the current federal debt, and that's not including interest. Now, what if we were to pay that off in one year? 
divided by 365 days, is $247.56 per day per person, both adults and children. So for us to pay off our federal debt at $30 trillion, not including interest, in one year, just doing it in one year, a family of four would have to pay about $1,000 every single day on top of everything you're already paying for. Think about everything you pay for. Groceries, gas, your mortgage, your car payment, your medical bills, all the insurance, your current federal taxes. Think about that, your current federal taxes. Every man, woman, and child, $1,000 a day, plus everything else. That's why we're essentially bankrupt. And every time they spend more and more money, it gets worse and worse and worse. It's The Weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103. When we get back, some insanity from inside the White House press office. It's pretty funny. I'll be right back. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. I appreciate everybody tuning in on the weekend. Glad to have you with me. If you want to send me a text message, the logistics for this program are pretty simple. You can simply send me a text. Text the word Mike to 33103. In fact, I've just been reading through the text messages. Text the word Mike to 33103. You know, some of you goobers are pretty smart. Boy, I hate to admit that, but you're pretty damn smart. Or you can always go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com, theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com, and there you can find all the social media platforms. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can stream us live on that page, and you can also go to that page and download the podcast. You can also find the podcast for the weekend wherever podcasts are found. Just search for The Weekend with Michael Brown, and boom, it'll pop up, and you can subscribe to the podcast, and you can listen, you can listen to it anytime you want to. Thus, it's a podcast. There's been a lot of what I just call dumbassery. My, my, my definition of dumbassery is just the, the stupid stuff that goes on around us every single day that I think we just become kind of immune to. It's not like we took a monkeypox vaccination and it just makes us immune to the dumbassery. But I think it's just there's just so much of it that at some point we just become overwhelmed by it. And when we, be, and when we become overwhelmed by it, well, there's just not much else to do except to ignore it or to start blowing it off and say, well, you know, it's just the way it is. I want to give you an example. So in the last hour, we talked about the debt. And in the hour before that, we talked about inflation and how Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is out to, he's, he's it's, it's like he and, he and Joe Biden are having some sort of, I don't know, tennis match or something. And they're trying to lob the ball at each other. And, and the ball that, that Biden is throwing over there is more government spending. And Jerome Powell is trying to bounce it back over the net with higher interest rates, trying to tell Joe Biden that, hey, listen, the more you keep throwing this 
ball of money and this ball of spending over here, the more I've got to keep increasing interest rates because inflation just continues to get worse and worse. So we're going to keep increasing interest rates. And at a, at a conference that he was at in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the Federal Reserve chairman pretty much announced that it's going to be even worse than we anticipated and probably much longer than we anticipated. So I think we're in for a pretty rough ride. If, if you happen to live through the 70s, the late 70s and early 80s with the Carter inflation that Ronald Reagan was finally able to get under control by limiting government spending and, and, and cutting back taxes, you understand just how bad that was. And I actually think, based on several metrics, that it's worse than it was during the Carter, Carter administration. Well, how bad can it get? How bad can it get? Let's go down south. If you need proof of how bad it is in Venezuela right now, look at this purse. This purse is made entirely of the bills of the Venezuelan currency, the bolivares. Inflation is so high that this money is now completely worthless. And so my friend Jorge over here has gathered a ton of this stuff and turned it into commodities, into purses, into sculptures. It is worse than it sounds, and it sounds pretty bad. The country's inflation rate will rise to one million percent. Um, that might be the definition of hyperinflation. I don't know, one million percent? Now, I know we're, we're a long ways from that. But if we don't stop this insanity, we could end up like Venezuela. I mean, we're, we're, we're in terms of domestic oil and gas production, in terms of all the stupid things that we're doing, no, it wouldn't surprise me in the least we get to that point. Other dumbassery sometimes just absolutely boggles my mind. Let's go to Minneapolis. This morning, the Minneapolis school district is sticking with its controversial policy to lay off white teachers before minority ones, regardless of tenure. Previously, district-wide layoffs used to be handed out based on seniority. In March, the mini did you Did you catch that? Wait a minute. Go back and listen. This morning, the Minneapolis school district is sticking with its controversial policy to lay off white teachers before minority ones, regardless of tenure. Previously, district-wide layoffs used to be handed out based on seniority. In March, the Minneapolis Teachers Union negotiated a contract with the district that states non-white people can be exempted from layoffs in order to remedy the continuing effects of past discrimination. The district telling ABC News the contract aims to support the recruitment and retention of teachers from underrepresented groups. That remedy now prompting legal concerns. The Supreme Court has been really clear on this issue that just having a policy to prefer one race over another in terms of layoffs is clearly a violation of the 14th Amendment. Special interest groups. You know, that's actually a point we shouldn't gloss over. Because that's part of the battle of the civil rights movement. The battle of the civil rights movement was really multifaceted. It was indeed to secure full citizenship for people of color. It was to ensure that they had the right to, you know, pursue their, their own line of work, to, to work wherever they could get a job, and to keep, you know, bigots from keeping them from getting a job simply because of their skin color. It was to ensure that they had an equal right to vote. It, it was to ensure that they could participate in this republic just as white people did. That, that's, and that was 
at the very beginning, at the very founding of this country, was the very purpose of equal protection of the laws. Now, we fought the Civil War over it. We had the Civil Rights battle over that. We did all of those things. Is there ever, you know, it kind of goes back to my question about what's fair. At what point, at what point do we say we have done everything that we can systematically, I guess I would, I, my, I'd use the word systematically, that we've put in all of these rules, these regulations, these court decisions, and everything else, and at what point do we say that we've done everything that we can, and now as a society, on an individual basis, we have to continue to fight for equality, but we also have to continue to recognize that there's still bigots, always will be bigots, we have to persevere against those bigots, and we have to start recognizing people for you know, who they are and what they are, not the color of their skin. It drives me crazy. Crazy. I was listening to a podcast this morning while I was out walking the dog. Greta the Leonberger. By the way, she has her own Instagram account. If you want to watch, if you want to see my dog, go to Greta the Leonberger. Now I was listening to this podcast. And it was it was kind of interesting because they they had mentioned this story, which is why I, I caught wind of it. And they, they said something to the effect about why aren't we at the stage where we can, even though, even though there's still discrimination, there will always be discrimination, but why don't we at some point recognize that we have put all of the rules in place that need to be in place, but when it comes to something like layoffs, why isn't it like, you know, based on seniority? Why isn't it? Why do, why do we seem to be regressing in many ways? And, and I say that, as, as, I say that as, a, as a dumb white guy who has never experienced. In fact, I was with a good friend of mine the other day. And he pointed out a reaction that someone was having with the two of us as we were ordering uh, lunch. That because of him, they kept looking at me. And I, I, never, I, hadn't paid any, I never paid any attention to it. But it was kind of an aha moment for me of, oh, that waitress was acting bigoted. So what did I do the next time she came to the table? I ignored her. I forced her to deal with my friend. Yeah. My little, my little battle. But this, with these teachers, I just find fundamentally wrong. In 2020, students of color and Native Americans made up 35% of Minnesota's K-12 population, but only 4% of the more than 63,000 teachers in the state were people of color. In Minneapolis, there's a gap between the diversity of students and the diversity or lack of diversity of their teachers. This is not about trying to pit one racial group of teachers against another. This but, is about... But that's what it does. It may not be about that, but that's, uh, that's what it does. And here's the other thing that always drives me crazy about those kinds of statistics. So X, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual preference, whatever it is, makes up X percentage of, of society, but only makes up a slightly smaller percentage of teachers or firefighters or radio talk show hosts or whatever it might be. Well... Okay, 
That is a meaningless comparison until you tell me why that is. Is it because people of certain ethnicities or sexual preferences or skin color or race or whatever it might be, they don't go into a certain profession for whatever reason? We just take it at face value and just say, okay, well, then that must, you know, must be wrong. I don't think we can do that. And at some point, we really have to inch our way back to a meritocracy where people succeed and fail on the merits. Serving students the best. Several black educators in Minneapolis in agreement with the contract. When they see somebody who looks like me and maybe looks like them, they feel a greater sense of connection and belonging in that community. I would say that we would first have to start hiring more educational professionals of color and start hiring more black. I wouldn't disagree with that. If, if you have qualified candidates of equal merit and you're trying to for if, if, if this is constitutional, able to reach a certain percentage, then that's fine. But if you don't have those candidates of merit, then you can never reach that percentage. Licensed teachers of colors. Others believe the new policy will do more harm than good. There's different ways that we should be hiring, but we should not be implementing hiring decisions based on the color of people's skin. And at some point, I just... I just pray that at some point we really do get back to a meritocracy and we kind of stop this stuff of everything always being based on identity politics. And I think that starts with each of us individually. But hey, if you want, if you want to, again, talking about dumbassery, if you want to understand just exactly how crazy things have gotten, let's go to Taco Bell. Nothing is impossible. Taco Bell, it's testing a new plant-based meat alternative at some of its locations. So the fast food chain announced it has debuted a new crispy melt taco at some restaurants in Alabama, of all places. Yeah, right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, right. So the meat alternative. Yeah. You know, I find that funny. So Taco Bell is finally introducing something that actually is like, I don't know, is it real food or fake food? Or is this just another proof that... Taco Bell is just all fake food, and now they're going to have, like, fake meat to put in the beef and bean burrito. I don't know. But back up and find Tell me why it is that the anchors find this funny. Put a new crispy melt taco at some restaurants in Alabama, of all places. Yeah. In, in Alabama. So Taco Bell is going to try the, the fake meat in uh, <laughs> all places, Alabama. Why is that funny? What is that about? Taco Bell, fake meat, Alabama. Tell me. You're listening to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Text the word Mike to 33103. Mike to 33103. Hang tight. More dumbassery coming up next. know what you're listening to it's the weekend with michael brown that's what you're listening to and it's the darn good thing you're doing it too because we got this this we should just call this hour just dumbassery 
You can text the word Mike to 33103, Mike to 33103. Anything you want to ask, tell me, whatever it is, send me a text message. I love text messages. You can also go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com where you can follow me on social media. You can find the podcast there. You can do all sorts of things by going to the going to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com. And, of course, you can get the podcast anywhere now. We get the podcast up and running. So wherever you get your podcast, just search for The Weekend with Michael Brown. And then you can download, you can subscribe to the podcast, and you can listen to me all the time. Isn't that fantastic? So let's go to California. I always feel bad when I go to California because my producer, Damien, is sitting in California. And, and I hate to make fun of California because it's like Damien's back there rolling his eyes at me. But I'm going to do it anyway. How, how, in fact, I'd be curious how many Californians that are listening know this. Where does your energy come from? Where does the energy come from that powers, you know, you see all those high lines around, around Los Angeles. Where, where does that power come from? Do you know? Do you know that 20%, 20% of the power that California consumes is imported from coal and natural gas? Yeah. The same state that's trying to kill the oil and gas industry is importing almost 20% of its energy from coal and natural gas plants, or natural gas itself, or coal for coal-fired. Well, no, there are no coal-fired. So they're importing energy from coal-fired plants. Now, they also import, let's see, about 11% from nukes from outside. I'm talking about imports. This is not inside the state. This is from outside the state of California about 16% of their energy from large hydro projects. And, of course, I love this category, about 22%, which if you add then to all the others is a significant amount, comes from unspecified. I guess that's the magic energy fairy somewhere. Now, why do I point out the imports that California does to get energy into its state? Well, let's see. We had the, I can't remember the name of the little town, where, um, oh, what was that little town? Where the, where the fire just completely destroyed the town. And, of course, it was because they had failed to keep up the power lines, to keep up the transmission lines. And so you had all these problems with, with the ener- energy distribution system. Then you have the problem of having to import all this energy from other areas around the country into California. And at the same time, Governor Newsom decides that this is probably a good time that we ought to get rid of what? The internal combustion engine. Come on, play for me. Okay, so anyway, let me refresh the page, get this story up, because I want you to hear from Gavin Newsom uh, what he's going to do with gasoline-powered engines. St. Jude. And, of course, I have to wait for the ad to stop playing because I had to refresh the page because I put this story off. So there's a little inside baseball about why we're waiting right now. So while we're waiting, we'll take a break. I'll get this soundbite back up, and when we get back, let's hear what California's doing with the internal combustion engine. Text the word Mike to 33103. That's Mike to 33103. And when we get back, remember those figures. California's importing at least 20, if not 40%, of its energy from elsewhere. And what do they want to do? That's coming up next. 
don't go away. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie, now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. This is The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with us. Text the word Mike to 33103-33103. You're listening to 33103. So we're talking about just stupid stuff that's going on in the world. I think sometimes, I'll tell you what prompted this. I should probably tell you why I'm doing this this hour. We're having dinner with some friends last night, and this friend of mine is an engineer. And, and we're all, we all pretty much think alike about certain you know, political issues. And I made the comment to the table that I thought, things just seem really bad right now. And I kind of got chastised by my wife and others about, well, things things have always been bad. But I kind of think things are kind of worse than they have been, at least in my lifetime. Now, I can't speak for, you know, Depression-era America. I can't speak for Revolutionary War America. I can't speak for Civil War America. But I can speak for my lifetime. And for my lifetime, when you take an inventory of everything that's going on in the world right now, I mean, the world economy is kind of teetering on, on a worldwide depression and, or, or worldwide inflation, which would cause worldwide depression. You've got the war in Ukraine. You've got China really at a point where they really do think, because, because Chairman Z is, is at a point with this Communist Party National Congress coming up in October, that if he doesn't think that he can consolidate his power, which is iffy right now, and get an unprecedented third term as the head of the Communist Party, he may just go ahead and try to invade Taiwan because he sees a president and a weakened America that doesn't have the the firepower that we once had. And I mean literally firepower. So maybe he sees an opportunity to maybe make a strike on Taiwan and take over and have, have the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company become you know, a Chinese wholly owned Communist Party government uh, or company. You got the U- war in Ukraine. Who knows what crazy Vladimir Putin might do over there? Uh, you got Kim Jong-un. We got America's, the United States of America is about to transfer almost a trillion dollars to the mullahs in Iran. And somehow we keep being told, and I just, I want to just bang my head against the wall. Well, we're doing this because we want to be a part of the, the, the JCPOA, this stupid agreement that the Iranians say, well, we're not going to build a nuke. No, we would never do that. And we're supposed to trust the world's number one sponsor of terrorism. And we're going to give them almost a trillion dollars. That's, that's not even accounting the, the plane loads of cash that Barack Obama sent them. So we're destroying the alliances that that Jared Kushner and the Trump administration put together in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords, where the Arabs and the Egyptians all agreed with the Israelis that, you know, we ought to come together because our common enemy is really Iran. It's not each other. So that alliance could fall apart, which would realign the Middle East. And who knows what would happen then? So you got all of this stuff going on. 
And we then think about what's happening just in California because we all know that what happens in California or that happens in New York, because these are two major cultural political centers of the, of the universe, suddenly trickle down to us peons in flyover country. That's why I pointed out that in California, they import a significant amount of their energy. And so at, at the same time that all of the California energy companies are having a hard time, you know, keeping, keeping lights on in California, they decide to do this. And once again, it's not going to play. Anyway, let me, let me tell you. Here we go. Let me just get the sound up. And there's no sound on it. Let me tell you what it says. The California Air Resources Board has approved new regulations this past week that would require 35%. That is more than a third of every new car sold in the state to be an electric vehicle by 2026. That's just what? That's less than, that's just slightly over four years away. And 100% have to be electric vehicles by 2035. Now, that doesn't mean that by 2026 that 35% of the cars on the road in California are going to be electric vehicles, nor does it mean by 2035 that 100% of the cars in California will be electric vehicles. And it also doesn't mean, I don't know what the, I have not seen the specific rules, I haven't read the regulations themselves yet, but think about the unintended consequences. That means that if I live in California and I still want an internal combustion engine simply because I want to be able to drive all the way, say, from L.A. to San Francisco or L.A. to San Diego without having to stop and charge my vehicle, then I want an internal combustion engine. Or if I want to drive over to Las Vegas. So what are people going to do? What would, what would someone like me do? Well, I would, I would fly to Phoenix, or I'd, or I'd drive to Phoenix, or I'd drive to Las Vegas. I'd drive somewhere out of state, and I'd make my car deal outside the state. And then just drive it back into California, because I don't find anything in the regulations that prohibits me from doing that. So now you're going to hurt the automobile industry in California. But even dumber than that, California's already importing 20% of its energy from coal and natural gas. So now think about, the, let, let's just say, let's just pretend for a moment that the number of electric vehicles, now the number of electric vehicles I think on the road right now account for less than 10% of all vehicles driven. But let's say that in California that number bumps up from 10% to 20 or 30%. That means there is a corresponding increase in the need for electricity to power those vehicles, and California's already importing a significant amount of its energy, so they're going to have to increase those imports. Or alternatively, which California won't do, is they could increase their generation capacity by building their own natural gas plants or their own coal-fired plants. Or how about taking some old nuke plants and put, the, put those nuclear power plants back online again and create the greenest energy of all? I could go, California, why don't you do that? 
Because if you're going to, if your policies are going to trickle down to the rest of the nation, hey, go build some nuclear power plants and show all the environmentalists just exactly how great they are and how efficient they are and how much power they can produce. Daniel Sperling, who's a member of the Air Resources Board, and a founding director of the UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies, says that this is transformative. Yeah, it is. It indeed is transformative. News reports say that some 17 other states, now that California's done this, that they may try to do the same thing. Now think about if 17 other states did this. Suddenly it becomes more difficult maybe not more costly, but more difficult just in terms of logistics, of buying an electric vehicle, I mean, of buying an internal combustion-powered vehicle. So now you've got to start flying or driving all over the country to find one. But even as you make the transition, there is nothing, there is nothing. In fact, I would challenge any of you listening anywhere in the country to show me how this increased demand for electricity can be met by solar and wind, because it can't. So we're going to have to increase the production of electricity somehow. And the only way I know to do that efficiently and quickly is, well, I would say build nuclear power plants, but the, because the environmentalists will fight that, that'll take forever. Or to increase oil and gas production. But the environmentalists fight that too. So it becomes this almost quixotic, kind of drive for electric vehicles without thinking about the unintended consequences of the need for more electricity and where's that going to come from. Now, again, I emphasize, I'm not opposed. If you want to drive an electric vehicle, power to you. Go do it. But don't tell me, one, that you're saving the planet, and two, don't think that it's not going to cause an increase if more and more people start doing it of a demand for increase in electricity. And then think about the other consequences. Think about the consequences of building more lithium batteries. Think about the cost of replacement of batteries. Right now, it's outrageously expensive to do it. Now, those costs would eventually come down, but as those costs come down, that means there's more of them produced, so the more batteries you have to replace those existing batteries in electric vehicles, you have to produce those batteries. Who produces them? We don't do it here. We do it in China. And where does China get the rare earth minerals to do that? Hmm, not from us. They don't do it. They go to Africa to do it. All of this pie-in-the-sky dream of transformative, you know, we could get there. We could eventually get there if we would let the free market do it. But when you try to force it, you have all these unintended consequences that people don't want to think about that make these kinds of regulations. So I would say to not just people in California, but people in New York and people in the Midwest, people wherever you are, if you think that doing a forced conversion to electric vehicles is going to be all, you know, sunshine and lollipops, guess what? It's not. Because you got to power that somehow. An electric vehicle requires, hmm, imagine that, electricity. Hey, it's The Weekend with Michael Brown. We're just talking about some of the dumb stuff going on in the world right now. Oh, I've got more. Don't go away. Text the word Mike to 33103. Be sure and go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com. Hang on. 
more dumbassery coming up next. Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Text the word Mike to 33103. Go to theweekendwithmichaelbrown.com. Download the podcast. You can find the podcast wherever you you get yours. Just search for The Weekend with Michael Brown. Subscribe to it and listen to me whenever you want to. Appreciate you doing that. So we're just talking about just stupid stuff that's been going on because I just, it's, it seems to me that maybe it's news coverage. It's the fact that we live in this 24-hour news cycle all the time now and we're just inundated but I don't know, this week just seemed to be filled with just really dumb stuff. Here's the next example I wanted to give you. Now, I often refer to what far-left Democrats do as fascism. And I use that word in particular. Because even though it doesn't meet all three elements of fascism, what they're doing is, in essence, fascism. What is fascism? What is it? I mean, I know when we think of fascism, we think of, at least I do, I think of the German Nazi Party, uh, the Italian Fascist Party, duh, uh, the Spanish Nationalists. So you've got Hitler, you've got uh, Benito Mussolini, you've got Francisco Franco. But what is, uh, fascism is really there's three elements. You have a dictator, and the government itself, which is controlled by the dictator, controls business and labor, and then it stifles any opposition and engages in censorship and, and taps down any opposition to its control of both the citizenry and government. So when you think about what the Democrats do, in many instances, and to some degree, sometimes Republicans do this too. The government controls business. The most recent example of that was the FBI doing what it cannot do constitutionally by getting Facebook to do it for it. So on the Joe Rogan podcast, which is like the number one podcast, I forget, it's being beaten out now by somebody else. But the Joe Rogan podcast, which reaches millions... Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and chairman of of Meta, Facebook, pretty much admits that the FBI came to them about the Hunter Biden laptop story and said, this is Russian disinformation, you ought to be aware of it. And, you know, we're just, you know, you just ought to be aware of it. You know, you know, it's Russian disinformation. Well, the government cannot do through a private entity what it is prohibited from doing by itself. So the FBI, in essence, engaged in censorship, violation of the First Amendment, by getting Facebook to do what the FBI couldn't do. That's what's going on right now. The other thing that's going on is when you have government that basically tells business how to conduct its business, which is what the administrative state and the regulatory state do day in and day out in this country, the only thing that we're missing is a dictator. Now, I don't think we're anywhere close to getting to a dictator, 
but we are at least meeting a couple of the definitions of fascism because we're tr- the government is trying to control and keep opposition at bay, and they are in essence controlling business. Well, guess what? Jean-Claude Pierre, Jean-Claude Dam, John Dam Claude, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the White House press secretary, says this. Uh, <laughs> so two, two questions. Sure. Uh, only semi-fascism come in. Yeah. Uh, is this something we're going to hear more of, that phrase? Is it something the president's going to kind of embrace? Or is there any sense that it was... Uh, you know, a little impromptu, and it's going to turn into a kind of basket of deplorable thing that he regrets and that tries to be quiet about. What he's referring to is the president walking out to Marine One pretty much, well, he didn't, he did specifically refer to MAGA Republicans, which is supposed to be a derogatory term, referred to them as being semi-fascist. And so this reporter is asking, is this going to become an issue is this going to become somewhat like Hillary Clinton's comment about a basket of deplorables referring to Trump supporters? And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar says this. I, look, I was very clear when uh, when laying out uh, and defining uh, what uh, you know MAGA Republicans have done, and you look at the definition of fascism, and you think about uh, what they're doing in, in attacking our democracy. Wait a minute. Attacking our democracy? Where? Where where, where are they attacking democracy? Where, where are they attacking the institutions? If they're going up against the administrative state and trying to curtail the, the administrative state from all the regulations that pretty much control business, I would say that's not just, that is, that's the very definition of anti-fascism. They're trying to return us to a free market. Now, listen, Republicans aren't always very good about that, but to say that that's engaging in anti-democratic behavior? Uh, you know, MAGA Republicans have done, and you look at the definition of fascism, and you think about uh, what they're doing in, in attacking our democracy, what they're doing in taking away uh, our freedoms. Taking away our freedoms? What? I mean, serious question. Text, text me, text the word Mike, 33103. I would, if you sincerely believe that Republicans are attacking freedom and taking away our freedoms, I'd like to know that. I'd like to know what it is you think that Republicans, or in particular people like me, conservative slash libertarians are doing, to take away freedoms. I think, I, I think it's the Democrats that are doing it. I sincerely do. She has an entirely different point of view. She has an entirely different worldview than I do. And I'm trying to understand where she's coming from. Uh, taking away, wanting to take away our rights, our voting rights. I mean, how? How? By saying that you have to prove that you're a citizen of this country to vote, and you have to have an ID to vote. My gosh, we really li- are living in an upside down world. Hey, thanks for tuning into the weekend with Michael Brown. Appreciate you doing it. You can listen to podcasts. Just search for The Weekend with Michael Brown. Subscribe to that podcast and listen to me anytime. See you next weekend.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.